You're listening to From Woke to Work, The Anti-Racist Journey. My name is Kamala Avila Salmon, and I gotta be real with you. A black square on your Instagram does not make you an anti-racist, but there is a path. Join me as I guide you from becoming aware of racial injustice to actually doing something about it. Whether you're an ally ready to take action or just a Black person looking for someone else to answer all those ally questions, you're in the right place. It's time to go from woke to work. Hey everyone, welcome to a special edition of From Woke to Work, The Anti-Racist Journey. I'm your host, Kamala Avila Salmon, and I had to interrupt our journey through this anti-racist funnel to reflect on what happened at the Capitol on January 6th, 2021, or as it felt to me, December 37th in the unending trash year known as 2020. And by reflect on it, I really mean rage about it. Because friends, what the hell happened at the Capitol on Wednesday, if not a flagrant representation and affirmation of the potency of white supremacy in our country? And as a Black person who has been consistently critical of our nation for good reason, I was forced into the awkward position of seeming to appear extra patriotic in my outrage against the Trumpsters, who tried pretty embarrassingly to overthrow our government. So much so that I think a lot of white people who are equally mad about it probably got the wrong takeaway. So let me be clear. It's not just that I value our democracy and do not think that we should have people able to storm the Capitol when we're trying to confirm a legally elected U.S. president. It is that if anyone should be showing up to the Capitol with intent to overthrow it because they have been so grievously wronged, let me tell you who it's not. It's not white people who have literally been afforded every inch of the American democracy since the country's founding just because they lost a single election. It is definitely not them. So this week, as I watched in horror, like most rational people, as a mob of angry white people descended on the Capitol cheering their modern-day Hitler-esque demagogue, and then breached the barricades to enter the building, forcing a process to confirm electoral votes to come to a halt, and shuttling elected congressional officials underground to hide for their safety. I was beside myself. I gave up the pretense of doing work as usual and started writing post after post on Facebook, which is my native venting platform, as I processed my feelings about it all. First came shock. Now, Trump said that he would organize a revolt in D.C. on the pretense of election fraud. That never happened. He assembled his people and they did it. So my shock is not surprise, because from the second the people elected this narcissistic megalomaniac who lacks both scruples and shame, I knew that this was possible at his exit. He has never been someone who would said he would go quietly. He's never pretended to be anything other than what he is. So I don't know how anyone could be truly surprised by anything, but the images on TV were shocking as I simply had never seen them before, at least not in my lifetime, but we'll get to that later. Then came anger because had these men and women, these insurrectionists, these domestic terrorists been black, we all know what would have happened next. We would have been watching a massacre on the steps of the Capitol. And that is not hyperbole. All summer long, we watched how governments and police forces around the country responded to Black Lives Matter protests, peaceful Black Lives Matter protests. National guards were sent in, 
police forces were militarized and full police forces went on red alert before a single protester even marched. Hundreds were arrested every weekend. According to the Washington Post, 14,000 is the estimated number of arrests made across 49 U.S. cities during anti-racism protests this past summer. Want to guess how many arrests were made on Wednesday, the day that we all watched armed rioters rush the Capitol, breaking windows to get in, engaging in gun standoffs with the police, forcing elected officials underground, and stopping a confirmation vote happening on the Congress floor? 52. Not 5,200. 5-2. And if you don't know how that's possible, you haven't been paying attention. Then came disgust, because this is honestly the most American thing that has ever happened in my lifetime. Of course, white people could literally plan an insurrection in plain sight, tell everyone when and where they would strike. And yet the police force would be unprepared, unready to respond, just stupefied. When we looked closer, it wasn't that at all. Instead, we saw videos of police opening barricades to let rioters in. We saw images of police taking selfies with rioters. We saw rioters giving interviews, freely sharing their names and addresses, certain that they would face no prosecution. Of course this was happening. What else can happen in a white supremacist country that elected a white supremacist president who sat tweeting his support to rioters intent on securing him an illegal second term? As one brilliant tweet put it, why y'all keep asking where the police at? Do y'all ask where Miley's at when Hannah's on stage? For those who didn't grow up with the Disney classic Hannah Montana, I'll fill you in. Hannah Montana is the pseudonym for Miley Ray. They are the same person in the sitcom. And just so, the people storming the Capitol are the same kind of people that some expected would stop them. Couldn't happen. So with all of these feelings boiling inside, My producing partner, Julian, reached out and said, hey, do you want to do a special episode of From Woke to Work on this madness? So, yeah, I do. Because anyone aspiring to be an ally or an anti-racist needs to really understand the levels of white privilege on display at the Capitol and how it's connected to Black Lives Matter. So I invited a dear friend and Shiro, Abele Akobi, and an incredible scholar, activist, and social impact organizer, Dr. Ni Cordelai Corte, to break it down. Let me introduce them. Abele is the public policy director for Africa, the Middle East, and Turkey at a major tech company. And prior to that, she had been the global head of human rights at Yahoo, the head of marketing for management leadership for tomorrow, a senior director of advisory services at Catalyst in Silicon Valley and Amsterdam, and more but I just know her as a bold and effective voice for equity, honesty, and change when it comes to anti-Blackness in America. Dr. Corte started creating change as a 13-year-old student organizer for Oprah's Angel Network and has been sought out ever since for his skills in organizing social change and influencing organizational leadership on strategic initiatives with a consciousness around racial equity and LGBTQIA inclusion. During the 2020 election cycle, Dr. Corte served as senior policy advisor for the Out for Biden initiative of the Biden-Harris presidential campaign. He also lives and works in D.C., so what unfolded last week literally took place in his backyard. In a word, they are both changemakers, and we are really lucky to have them here to help us make sense of what happened last week. Abele and Dr. Nicolai, welcome to From Woke to Work, The Anti-Racist Journey. 
Thanks for having us. Thank you, Kamala. It's an honor to have you both here, and I wish it was under less apocalyptic circumstances. But such is life on what feels like the 700th day of March 2020, so let's just get into it. Dr. Nicordelai, where were you when the insurrection at the Capitol started, and what were your immediate thoughts on it? Well, thank you again for really organizing this conversation. It feels like it was just yesterday. I was working from home and digging myself out of holiday emails while being on a series of conference calls. And all of a sudden, I started getting news alerts. I started getting text messages from family in California that had been watching the news. I then turned on the news because anybody that works in D.C. will say, if you can, practice a news diet (laughs) where you're not surrounded by it all the time. It'll drive you crazy. And so I turned on the news and I saw the protests taking place literally down the street, live on the TV. And as somebody that has lived and worked in, in D.C. for four and a half years, as somebody that had traveled in and out of D.C. prior to that, I'm well aware of D.C.'s culture of protest. That's certainly not unusual. But right away, there was something that was very peculiar about what I was seeing on TV and some of the images that were starting to come in. The fact that you had this mob that was gaining ground and appeared to have the potential to get into the Capitol and actually did reach the security and and get into the Capitol was alarming. I have a lot of friends that work on the Hill. And so right away, I began texting with them, concerned about their safety, and actually felt that it might even get worse as nightfall came closer. I immediately thought this was a new low for America. Our temple of democracy isn't even considered sacred ground. It's not considered neutral ground. The fact that we were subject to this legislative coup, this electoral coup, whatever you want to call it. It it was a coup d'etat. That's what it looked like live on TV. And I happen to believe that the folks went there with the intention to intimidate, to terrorize, and to subvert our democracy. I believe that there were a number of folks that may have had the intention to go in there and to find the electoral ballots and to destroy them, to discard them, to steal them, to disrupt a significant step in our democratic process. And that's deeply concerning. Anybody and everybody should be deeply concerned. And and I'm really haunted by the images that I saw last week. I totally agree. I mean, at the end of the day, once order was mostly restored, I posted something that said that the events were unprecedented. And I'm so glad that Abele actually responded to basically say, well, I agree with you on the rest, but the part where you said it's unprecedented, it's not. Because honestly, like you're 100% right. This is always the way that white power has asserted itself when it feels under attack. We saw it in the Civil War when white Confederates took up arms ready to overthrow the Union for the right to own people that looked like us. We saw it in the post-Reconstruction era when opponents of Black progress formed state political parties and launched violent paramilitary groups, such as the White League in Louisiana and the Red Shirts in Mississippi and the Carolinas that assassinated and intimidated both black and white Republican leaders at election times. We saw it in the way that white men, women, and even children intimidated, threatened, spit on, and otherwise attacked black people seeking to peaceably assemble and enter schools, 
lunch counters and the like. So we really can't call it unprecedented. So Abele, I'm curious how you see what happened at the Capitol in the context of everything we know about the history of white supremacy in the U.S. and how you feel it's all connected. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that struck me most is how consistent white supremacy in the U.S. is. By that, I mean that white supremacy in the U.S., since the country was founded on the genocide of Native people and built with the blood of Black people, America has historically been laser focused on keeping itself alive and keeping whiteness on the throne with its boots on our necks at all costs. It shifts formats, it shifts dogmas in order to stay alive. That's why when people say things like, oh, why are they voting against their own interest about things like healthcare or welfare? I laugh because this is the interest. This is the most important interest. White supremacy is also deeply undemocratic. It's actually a triumph of propaganda that a country like America, a country that has never guaranteed the vote, never guaranteed equal justice under the law to all of its citizens by design, has been able to sell itself as a shining city on the hill. It's also consistent. I thought that watching those people mob the Capitol, it's consistent with how white supremacy, to your point, has always reacted historically when threatened by actual democracy, from the draft riots to civil war, to the civil war, to reconstruction, to the lynchings and murders, to the fact that America has also been deeply implicated in the overthrow of democratic regimes, including assassinations of true democratic leaders around the world, because democracy is actually a threat to white supremacy. So that's what I thought when I saw it. I thought it was wholly consistent. And then the final thing I will say is I was not shocked. From the beginning of this election, I have always said even if Biden won, or at the beginning wasn't clear who the Democratic candidate was going to be, that there was, it could not end in any other way. And in fact, the only thing that surprised me is that it wasn't successful. And I think the only thing that saved us is that the people who were carrying it out were too stupid to do it correctly. And in the past, people have been smart enough to do it well. So those were my sort of initial thoughts that it's consistent. I totally agree. I mean, it's sad to say, but there's no lies in anything that you just shared. And I think that this is the level of honesty that we need to have about our country and its history if we truly want to move to a different place. Wishing that it were different is not the same as it actually being different, which is something that I've been saying a lot to people this week, seeking a silver lining or some other way to say, well, it's not so bad. And, you know, I honestly found myself feeling pretty annoyed and frustrated by many of the responses that I saw and heard from white people both in person and on social media and even on the news. Many were expressing surprise. And just like you, I was like, but how? They told you that this would happen. Better yet, Trump told you that he would do exactly this. So how can you be surprised? We've been warning that this was the likely outcome for a long time. And then others expressed disappointment, but try to brush it off quickly with, well, at least they're almost gone. Trump is on his way out anyway. It's all going to be fine. And to those people, I just really want to say Trump didn't start this and therefore it won't be done when he leaves. It's too convenient in many ways to leave all of this at Trump's door. But that's not the whole story. This is an American story of whiteness and how it has always worked. And if we don't see that, then this is how we know that everyone who spent the summer getting woke wasn't necessarily learning the right lessons. Because shock and and horror at Black death is different than actually understanding 
just how deeply embedded and entrenched white supremacy is just in our way of life and in our country. So Dr. Nicordal, I'd love to ask you, what kind of reactions did you hear from people, and in particular from white people during and after the attack? And how do you feel like it's different from those that you maybe heard from other Black people in your life or even how you felt? I think the response that I heard from white folks was a response of there was genuine concern. These white folks that I know there was concern, there was shame, there was a sense that some folks didn't know sort of what to do. What to do, let alone where do we go from here? I saw a tweet even this morning from Rufus Gifford, who was one of the deputy campaign managers on the Biden campaign. He's white and talking about how he's still haunted by Wednesday and particularly the construction of gallows on the mall and folks that were chanting about executions and really wondering you know, how real was that? And were there plans to follow through with that? And clear that the entire event needs to be investigated as a domestic terrorist act. And so I was hearing response like that. I received a number of text messages and emails and phone calls from a whole lot of friends, not just white friends, but your question was specifically about white folks. And checking in, how are you doing? Are you safe? Is the family safe? And so I think there were a number of folks, white folks, black folks, that understood that what happened a week ago today was off the rails, was off the rails, certainly consistent with the violent behaviors and violent actions of white supremacists throughout our history. But there was something about this event on Wednesday in this current moment that felt off the rails. And there is genuine alarm about it. Part of what I've recognized from Black folks, Black folks, like, white folks, you got to do your work. You got to do your work. There are Black folks that were, quite frankly, pissed off. There was a, a video that was circulating, I think, the next day that showed a lot of Black service workers at the Capitol that were there cleaning up the mess. And there's something about that video, something about those images that was triggering. And it's like, here we go again. Literally cleaning up after white supremacy mess. Absolutely, enough is enough. And so I think that's a pretty consistent theme that I heard from Black folks the day after, seeing images of Black Capitol Police officers that didn't seem like they had all the tools that they needed to fight back. There was an officer that just had his baton and was working his way up the staircase and trying to fight back the angry white mob, right? What in the world? What in the world? So we're seeing that even when we are a part of law enforcement, it doesn't seem like that they're really standing together with us. So I've heard a resounding sense that we need white folks to not just be allies. I feel like sometimes the term ally implies that there's sort of an arm's length with the issue. And, and I say this as a Black and queer activist. And the sense that I'm hearing is that, you know, we need you to get in the game, right? There's no honorable mention here, no niceties. You need to take this work on head on. And the last thing I'll say is that pretty resoundingly, folks have said these people need to be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law as a domestic terrorist act, right? We don't need to pass new laws to prosecute them as domestic terrorists, to use the full weight of the federal government and state governments to hold these folks accountable because, and I believe this to my core, that, that white supremacy is 
the most destabilizing force in our democracy today. And if we don't check it here, that means overseas, folks aren't going to check it there. And this could be potentially all the more destabilizing around the world. I will defer to Ibele as our expert on that. But domestically, that's my sense talking to to friends over the past several days. I totally agree. And there was something that I saw or that I heard on the news where one of the pundits said, at least is this the end of this period in American history? And someone else said, my fear is that I don't know if I was watching the ending of something or the beginning of something. And I think that is something that people should really keep in mind. We don't know that this is the end of something. I think it's much more likely, and history would bear out, that it's much more likely to be the beginning of something than the end of something. And so I've often joked that I feel Black people deserve to win the Nobel Peace Prize every year for just continually not burning it all down in the face of the level of injustice that we have to deal with on a daily basis, from slavery to Jim Crow to examples like Tulsa to, again, more recently, no charges for the officers who shot Jacob Blake. Being Black in America is constantly enraging, and we have reasons to be mad. So when you consider the fact that there was a white person who was literally caught in the act of trying to overthrow our government and was shot once by a police, while Jacob Blake was shot unarmed seven times, Amadou Diallo 41 times, Brianna Taylor shot six times in her bed in a hail of 32 bullets. The level of force that they bring to meet us unarmed is just nowhere near the level of force that we saw when we saw people actively trying to overthrow the government. So if anyone should be trying to overthrow this government, let's just maybe say it shouldn't be those people. So Abele, I'm wondering what you make of what feels to me like a constant call for Black people to rise above and be the bigger person and go high, all of these things in the face of racism, while some people can literally try to burn it all down because they lost one election and go home to their families in the evening. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that I think should be useful, particularly for white people who see themselves as allies, is to understand what people mean when they say tell Black people to rise above. That is actually not about creating equity, that that actually really is more about policing Black people. So I like almost all Black women. I love Michelle Obama because, that, because of who she represents to us. And I know why she needs to move in the way that she moves, because I know how we are punished. Remember how she was punished in the beginning of the campaign as a militant for daring to talk even a little bit about the experiences of Black people. So I get why she says what she says, but her we go high always makes me cringe. It always makes me really angry, not at her, but at what's behind it. Those of you who are familiar with Langston Hughes is a very short, short poem, poem, Negroes, meek and humble, gentle and kind, but where the day they change their minds. And that's what I always have in my head because white supremacy depends upon the long suffering of black people. My sis, Kelechi Okafa, she lives here in the UK. She's also known as Kalechnikov. She's amazing. If you find her and look for her on Twitter, her voice is incredible. She posted a video about an incident in the UK where black men finally snapped on this white man who was spewing just racist nonsense at them. They were putting up with it, putting up with it, putting up with them. And they finally snapped and someone hit him in the mouth. 
And she posted a video and one, I mean, it was brilliant. And she, one of the things she said is chat shit, get banged. And white people came for her, even liberal white people. And they said, oh, why wasn't she talking about coming together? We should really be talking about the black people who put up with the racism and turned the other cheek. And I think that there's a dependency, even amongst, or even especially amongst, in quotes, good white folk, on us perpetually suffering and being victims. So anger is not allowed to us. They say violence is not the answer. But one of the things that Kalechi said is, isn't it the answer? If you look at the history of America, if you look at the history of colonization, if you look at the history of European countries, and when they talk about the ways in which they have been able to succeed, it is all based upon violence. It's based upon looting. It's based upon rape. It's based upon theft. And so this conversation around Black people rising above is, again, is not about justice. It's actually about facilitating the continued subjugation of people of color and also facilitating white supremacy. And again, I'm not using this as a platform to advocate armed struggle, but I do want people to interrogate when they're only directing this at Black people, what they're actually meaning. What are you actually facilitating? The other final point is I think that there is a real investment and Black people being subjugated. So there's this sense that the bar for us in terms of what we're supposed to put up with is so low. So I talk all the time about how the fact that my partner and I moved to the to the UK specifically because we thought about how we wanted to raise our children. And we didn't want our children to be raised in an environment we had to teach them how to be slaves in order to hope that they would be that they would be alive. And when I told people that, first of all, they didn't believe me or they thought it was exaggerating. But even when you talk to them about statistics relating to black people, there's a sense that, well, I mean But is that so bad? I mean, there's Obama. There's a couple of you who've made money. The bar for us is so low. The bar is like, well, at least you're not dead. I still remember an event at a company which were made unnamed and a Black person came to speak to us. And there had been all of this conversation at the company about the sense that Black people were not advancing. Black people weren't being put in a position of power, that there were very few Black people. Black people still stayed under 1% or 2% at the company. And this Black person saying to us, well, you guys here have these big jobs, but you're not here. You're not picking cotton. And I thought to myself, first of all, Kuhn, how is that the bar for us? The bar for us is that we're not picking cotton. And so that to me, it's all part of it. One, that white supremacy depends upon us being long-suffering. And two, that there is sort of this understanding of the bar for Black people being so much lower than white people that our state is meant to be a state of perpetual suffering. And my view is that until we change that, it will continue. So good. I mean, a part of it is also that it depends on gratitude for the few exceptions that we have to the racist rule. And so you are meant to look at those few examples as like, that could be me, as opposed to interrogating, but why is this everybody else? Right, well also because the thing is, if if it is your natural state to be in a state of subjugation, then you should feel joy that even a couple of you have escaped because really this is the place where you're meant to be. And so if a couple of you, so it's not all of you, but you know, you wouldn't expect it to be all of you. Like why should all of you expect equity or justice? No, that's not that's not your portion. Your portion, your ministry is to be under. And so if a couple of you make it, you should feel grateful. It, it, it validates the system. In fact, They're like, it's working. The system is working. And you're like, no, it's not working. And it's so funny. I saw a poster and rolled my eyes immediately for some event coming up called the Reunited States, talking about how we need to immediately 
go to like, are you part of the solution to bring us back together? I'm like, bless your heart, Van Jones and Megan McCain, but this is not what we're doing. Well, I think it is funny because that is Mr. Well, anyway, yes. We already know. But I do think that people believe, to your point, that it is helpful to talk about how if Black people are willing to forgive and forget, then we can move forward because those are the terms of reconciliation. The terms of of racial reconciliation are not accountability. They are actually, if you're willing to forgive and forget, then we're good. Yes. Now, mind you, no forgiveness has actually been asked for. So Black people are expected to continue to forgive people who are not asking. There is a sense that they are right. So, So no one's even asking for forgiveness. No one has even come to say, oh my gosh, this was so wrong. No, no, no. We are meant to continue. And again, that is what keeps white supremacy evergreen. Yeah, totally. And nobody's asking for forgiveness, including a lot of the members of Congress that have been egging. There you go. I mean, if we just stop for a moment and just think, the fact that even after this mob invasion of our capital, the fact that there were still Republican members of Congress, there were still Republican members of the Senate that uh, challenged Joe Biden and Kamala Harris's win in the election. Absolutely. Even after, because I think that is a part of it. And, and that's the other piece that has really so enraged me. And I think you guys exactly posed it right, you know, when you said, Abele, that forgiveness is not even being asked for. All of a sudden, we're meant to bear this outpouring of Trump repudiation. All of a sudden, he's banned from here. We don't want his kind anymore. Republicans who have backed him all throughout, backed this bogus election fraud nonsense all the way through windows getting bashed in. Now some of them are trying to back away. In some ways, I actually prefer those who are like, I'm ride or die till the end. Because where you have sat is where you should sit. But now we're hearing people say, you know, Lindsey Graham, enough is enough. Trump loyalists in his cabinet announcing their resignation two weeks before y'all about to be fired anyway. So for me, it really is much ado about nothing. It's sound and fury that adds up to nothing because the time to oppose Trump was years ago. It's figuratively and literally too late now. That's right. And don't be fooled by the false heroism. Members of the administration that are submitting these resignations, it's like... It's not real. I know you're trying to position yourself for your next gig, but no, they need to sit in that. And they need to atone for for the part that they played. Correct. And bringing us to this point. Yeah, they needed to stay in their jobs and finish their jobs and do Article 25. Many of them um, are leaving that they don't have to do their actual jobs. That is what bravery, not, not even bravery, at this point it's not bravery because you've suborned it all the way till now. But the least you could do on your way out is do the one thing, do one thing. You have one job. At this point, you have one job. Come together, you can't even do that. I want to share with you guys something that I posted on social about this. Here's my take on folks like Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham and the rest who are just coming out now to say that enough is enough. You didn't speak when Trump peddled the fake birther conspiracy that made our first family less safe. You didn't speak when he rode down an escalator saying that Mexicans were rapists and drug dealers. You didn't speak when he tried to ban Muslims from our country simply for being Muslim. You didn't speak when he ordered families to be separated at the border and put kids in cages. You didn't speak when he said that there were good people on both sides of the white supremacist rally in Charlottesville. 
you didn't speak when his base said that the election had been stolen and incited them to the point of anger to descend on the Capitol to do exactly what they did on that day. So you don't need to speak now. You can save this performance for someone who cares. It's too late to try and salvage your legacy now. You're trash. You will always be trash. History will judge you the same regardless. So don't insult our intelligence by trying to claim a moral high ground now. If it took you this long, don't bother. So I guess you could say I have an opinion. And I'd love to know, we've already started talking about it. Why do you feel like it is so, it's so much more infuriating than it is vindicating what we've been saying all along to see these people coming out now? Because it, it insults the intelligence. It chafes at the conscience. People across America and people around the world. Dr. Maya Angelou, God rest her soul. When people show you who they really are, believe them the first time. And I think what's so infuriating is that there are a lot of folks from traditionally marginalized groups, Black folks, Indigenous folks, people of color, queer folks, that understood what Trump represented before he was president. They understood that the Republican Party was playing footsie with this really dangerous character and were willing to allow him to take over the party and change our democracy, really dismantle our norms, some of the norms in our democracy at lightning speed. They were willing to do that. You know, and so now for them to stand up and to point the finger and to say, you know, enough is enough, it's BS and we all know it. And for all people of conscience, it pisses us off. For me, it's the hypocrisy. And it's also the fact that what they did created it. So it's not just that they stood idly by. It is that they actually knowingly, because they knew what it was about, they gave fuel to this. They have created this. And so to create something and to create this and then now pretend to disavow it is even worse. That you would have Ted Cruz, who's one of the most odious individuals, like in the history of our nation, stand up before here and talk about the Hayes Tilden. That is, he knows what that is about. He knows that that was explicitly about disenfranchising Black people and that it led to the reign of terror of post-Reconstruction. And for him to sit up there as an elected official and boldly refer to that, reference that, knowing what the implications of it, knowing that it is that it stands for an explicit rejection of a multiracial democracy, and to call on that, to call on the ghost of that in this moment before that, he knew what he was doing. And so that for me is that you knew what you would, all of those people, all these people who talked about, oh, let's be neutral, all these people who said it wasn't serious, all these people, they knew. They knew what they were calling up. And now that the the fire next time has come, now they're pretending like they didn't have anything to do with it. And that's the thing that brings me huge rage. They were in positions of power, they were in positions of authority, and they use their power and authority to uphold white supremacy. You don't get to run away from that. That's you. That's own it. That's who you are. You are a white supremacist. And can we also just say that, you know, part of how white supremacy has shown up in a very visible way is obviously with what happened at the Capitol. But even if you look at how they have mishandled the response to COVID. We have four, almost 5,000 people dying every single day in the United States. Almost 5,000 people dying every single day. You know, the equivalent of more than a 9-11 happening every single day. And, you know, part of the reason is, 
I think part of the mishandling of the response is the fact that you see people of color, Black people, Hispanic, Latino people, Native American people, who if we catch it, you know, chances are we're going to die from it. We're going to have the most debilitating, lingering effects from it. You know, we're frontline workers, right? And, and so their white supremacy knows no bounds, right? And that's why I continue to say it is the most destabilizing force in our democracy and around the world if we don't handle it. So I think a lot of people are probably listening to this and they're like, damn, these Black people are mad. And I think a question on their minds might be, okay, so what do we do next? How can we move forward if we don't allow people to change their mind and come back? I have some thoughts on this, but I'm curious about your take. Where do we go from here? Dr. Corday? I think we, where we go from here is we do our work. We do our work. We understand who we are as agents of change. We are always the first unit of analysis. That means we read. It means we march. It means we vote. It means we review policies that are already on the books. It means that we legislate policies that are not on the books. It means that we lead by example. So whether you work in government, in the private sector, in the social sector, or uh, cross-sector, we need everybody to do their part. And that includes especially our white brothers and sisters, right? I don't think our generation wants to, has an appetite to continue to clean up the mess that's caused by enraged white mobs that chafe at multiracial, multicultural, queer-affirming steps forward in this democracy at every twist and turn, right? So I think that's where people, people should start. We start with doing our work. So I totally agree with what both you and Abele shared on why it is so frustrating to see all of these apologists honestly coming out now. My take is that you can't just say all of a sudden, I know I've been riding with Trump for years, but now I'm done with him. And, and then it's all good. I need to hear more about why you are changing your mind. Because all that I see is that when he was set on trampling the rights of Black people and Muslim people and immigrants and LGBTQIA plus communities, that was fine with you. But now that he and his followers are seeking to disenfranchise people that look like you, that can't stand. That doesn't feel like an apology that I'm inclined to accept. Not to mention, in most cases, there was no apology. There was no acknowledgement that anything wrong had been done. For instance, both Facebook and Twitter, in banning him now, have basically said, well, we've been handling him the right way all along, but just now he's crossed the line. No, he went too far a long time ago. For instance, I would say he went too far when he called for the shooting of peaceful Black protesters marching against racism. He literally quoted a white supremacist. You should have acted then. So no, taking the right action now is not going to get a like from me. There was a really great tweet that I saw on this point. It said, I applaud the people brave enough to leave the Trump administration now. It takes courage. After airline flights, I too have been known to unbuckle my seatbelt moments before the aircraft is at a complete stop. So I've experienced this level of courage firsthand. I'll tell you, I, I cackled at that one, which reminds me that Black Twitter has remained reliable and undefeated as usual throughout this debacle. So I'm curious, Dr. Corte, did you see any tweets that really made you laugh in the midst of your tears? And why do you feel like in general, Black Twitter is always there with the right response to white nonsense? 
I love Black Twitter. I love Black Twitter because Black people, we have a shared experience, so many shared experiences, shared traditions that we have that transcend nationality. There's a reason why, you know, I could fly to Paris and be in a Black community with Parisians there. I can, you know, be in Ghana or in the Caribbean and, you know, there are similar experiences. We, we may call them something different, you know, but, but, but there is a, a shared point of view that we have just as Black people, right? And, and I think Black Twitter at its best taps into that. You know, the greatest hits that come to mind in terms of posts that I've seen, I mean, you know, Reverend Al Sharpton's tweet that, you know, underscored that the March on Washington in August that also happened in my backyard, you know, over 200,000 people showed up for that, you know, and, you know, not one arrest. Nobody stormed the Capitol. And we were mad as hell during that uh, demonstration. And so I thought that was an important sort of level setting post. I thought the photo of, of the black service workers cleaning up the mess of the mega mob really, you know, pissed me off. And I'm sure it pissed a lot of other people off because there's something about it that is typical, uh, the aftermath of violence uh, by white supremacists. And so it sort of it felt triggering in that way. And the one that made me laugh was a tweet by uh, a friend that included a, a, a meme about Trump's Twitter account being permanently suspended and all the other social platforms in which his account has been suspended. And this friend took you know, special uh, glee in highlighting even Pinterest. You know, what do you have to do? <laughs> what do you have to do to get banned from Pinterest? <laughs> and so, you know, uh, that was a, a lighthearted moment there. But, you know, all of the, the tweets underscore how much work there is still to do. I think about, you know, some of their, their number of books that are on my nightstand right now, you know, Promised Land, uh, Obama's uh, memoir. You know, I'm also reading The Purpose of Power by Alicia Garza. I would encourage people to pick that up. And I really, 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 really love The Source of Self-Regard by Toni Morrison. There's so many short stories and essays in there that I think will help to, to feed our minds and our souls as we do our part to find our way through the wilderness in these really turbulent times. So good. So good. I, I just saw one today from Reverend Dr. Barber. He said, Republicans are now asking what they should do with Trump. Here's an idea. What would you have done if it were Obama? Just do that. Pretty simple. So before we wrap, I want to bring it back to the bigger picture, the topic of this podcast overall, helping people to move from woke to actually doing the work of allyship and anti-racism in a real way. So what lessons do you think the insurrection at the Capitol on Wednesday has to share for aspiring allies and anti-racists who want to do better, especially white folk? I think there are so many lessons that are being extended to us as a result of the violence that took place a week ago today. Right away, I think about one of my favorite learning theorists, Peter Singe. Peter Singe, in his book, The Fifth Discipline, he talks about the power of learning to create transformation. And he says that transformation happens when people are willing to begin to re-examine some of their underlying assumptions. I'll say it again. 
that Peter Singe, this is in the fifth discipline, he says that transformation happens when people are willing to begin to re-examine some of their underlying assumptions. And my hope is that last Wednesday's violence is challenging all of us to re-examine some of our underlying assumptions about our national security, about our public safety, about certain processes processes that are in place that, that may not keep us as safe as we think. One of the things that we didn't have a chance to talk about as much is D.C. statehood. I think last Wednesday underscores that D.C. statehood isn't just sort of a nice thing to do. You know, it isn't something that may narrowly benefit one party over the other, you know, but D.C. statehood should absolutely be a part of a national security conversation. You know, the fact that the D.C. mayor doesn't have the authority to bring in the National Guard and has to go through this matrix decision tree, right? She can't even call for help from the Virginia governor or Maryland governor in real time. That is a problem. And it is a problem of our own making. And we can solve that, but we've got to do the work and we've got to re-examine some of our assumptions about what progress looks like, about what the most significant challenges are, about who the perpetrators are, about who enables those perpetrators to do that work. And we have to begin to reimagine the future as it should be. Couldn't agree more. Abele, where do we go from here? So I'm going to be very honest because... You know, I try to be and say that I do not think that my ministry. So I've divested from the ministry of helping white people deal with the responsibilities related to white supremacy. I just have no interest in it. And I think that it's very important work. I just know that that's not for me. My ministry is really engaging with people of color. There is a quote from Stacey Abrams. I just thought it was so powerful where she said she's not in the business of changing Catholics into Baptists. She's in the business of getting Baptists to go to church. So that's me. That's not my thing. My ministry is not to go in and like beg people to to be angry because quite frankly, if you're if you're looking hearing me and you're hearing that I'm angry, my question to you is why aren't you angry? If you're someone who's standing up for justice, why aren't you angry? Why do I have to be angry in order for you to think, oh, maybe is this wrong? Do you believe in justice? Do you believe in a better world? Then be angry your fucking self. It's not my job to take off my clothes and show you my wounds so that you can think, oh gosh, are black people humans? Should I care? So that's not my interest. That's not my ministry. In the same way that white people have educated themselves about so many other things, they can do this as well. Educate yourself about this. Figure out where it is that you fit in. For me, my personal ministry is how do I create power and love and connection and joy and beauty amongst these communities that have the boot on their neck? That's what I'm doing. For other people that you have to figure out your your way of doing it. But that for me is what my focus is. I love that and I respect that. All right. Well, that is the perfect note to end on. I want to thank you both so much for coming here today to chat on this podcast. So before you go, can you tell everyone how they can follow you and your work, Abele? Well, one of the things that I'm focused on right now is, as people who know me know that my brother was murdered by police in 2018. 
in San Mateo County. And one of the, there are many, many, many pieces that uphold white supremacy and the murder of black people. And one of the pieces is district attorneys. So there is the impute, there is the fact that police can kill unarmed, innocent black people. And then there's the fact that there's complete impunity. And the reason there's complete impunity is because you have district attorneys who fail to prosecute. And so I fully and wholeheartedly believe in this conversation around defunding police. And I think if if we've learned nothing from the past week, we can see why police need to be defunded when they're actually in the service of white supremacy. But one of the things I'm focused on is the district attorney in San Mateo County. And so in San Mateo County, we have a district attorney that has consistently refused to prosecute um, police who murder people. And so I'm focused on this as a project. And so I'm trying to think of the, if you follow me on Facebook, I'm at Abella Okobi on Facebook. And we also have a Facebook page for my brother called Chinedu Okobi, so justice for Chinedu. And so if you go to that website, there's more information on our campaign between now and 2022 to unseat the district attorney. Amazing. Thank you. Dr. Corte? People can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Dr. Nicordelai, D-R-N-I-I-Q-U-A-R-T-E-L-A-I. Also, just sort of riffing off of what Abele has just shared, I would be remiss if I didn't mention a good friend of the family, Paul Henderson. He is the executive director of the San Francisco Department of Police Accountability and happens to be on the short list considered as an appointee to be the next attorney general of California. He is dynamic. He is someone who is committed to bringing a civil rights consciousness to the work of the attorney general's office in California. And so I'd encourage people to check out Paul Henderson and the work that he's been able to lead in the city and county of San Francisco. You know, we need leadership inside and outside of the, of the institutions and the systems that touch our everyday lives. And so I am, am in the business of supporting leaders that share our values, the values of your listeners, the values of, of all of us in and out of elected office. We need more leaders on the front lines I certainly will do my part to support leaders as such. All right, friends. I don't know about you, but I took so much away from this conversation, and I'm so glad we interrupted our regularly scheduled programming to have it. Now, next week, we're getting back on our program, assuming that we don't have another armed white insurrection on our hands before then, but one never knows. Assuming we don't, we're going to dive back into the funnel, but we're actually going to take another step back from it to look at a really important concept that you need to take through the rest of the funnel. We're going to dive into relationships and why relationships can't be a missing piece of your commitment to allyship and anti-racism. Exactly as Dr. Nicordelai mentioned earlier, allyship can have this sense of distance where you are other, you are not a part of. And that needs to be collapsed in order to do this work in a different way, in a way that's going to really, really matter. So next time, we'll dive into that. Till then, I'm your host, Kamala Avila-Salmon, and this has been From Woke to Work. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for joining us and for making it this far. As always, I'm Kamala Avila-Salmon. And you can follow me on social media at TheRealKS1. Subscribe now wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to rate us to help more people find the show. From Woke to Work was produced by me, Kamala Avila-Salmon, in partnership with Julian Lewis and TJ Bonaventura at StudioPod. 
Edits were made by Nota Lab. Our amazing artwork was designed by Tommy Gomez. And this fire track I'm speaking on was produced by Dave Contrap. Until next time, 